Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Oh, and judging by the tone of your voice, this is another Travel Medicine After Dark. I've got two sleeping children upstairs and my six-year-old is now old enough to march downstairs and very sternly tell me, Dad. You're being too loud. I can't sleep. Quite ironic, given how many of our listeners are put to sleep by the soothing sound of your voice. Not half as many, I imagine, as the even more soothing sounds of the Sandman. Yeah, but he has anesthesia to help him. Josh, we're not supposed (laughs) to tell them about that technology. That's classified. The podcast foundational clandestine association of America... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also called Pukada. <laughs> I was browsing Shut through up, right? the news as we were talking about all these cloak and dagger activities. Cool if you recall, uh, several months back, two Russian expatriates were found slumped on a bench in the middle of London, and there was a big to-do about it, uh, mm-hmm. which culminated in Russia yeah, being accused yeah. of poisoning. By yeah. several countries. However, it did spark the idea that, you know, we haven't really gone too much into the medicine of spies and warfare. So I figured we would start by looking into this case a little bit more and then talking about some of the effects of all these nerve agents and chemical weapons that have been used throughout recent history. 
We've we've covered a few of these before, I think, Josh. Like, for instance, ricin. But if you search for poisons and toxins, granted, you're going to land on quite a few of our episodes. But <laughs> there's definitely one or two episodes where we focused on um, plant-based toxins, especially. And, and ricin has definitely been used by clandestine services as an assassination tool. But since we've covered it a couple of times around, we wanted to go over a few of the uh the other agent let's get into the facts of the case mm-hmm. cue mission impossible music that i can't actually do because sure. i'm not sure if it's trademark infringement so everyone i want you to go ahead and imagine in your heads the mission impossible theme <laughs> or some appropriate spy theme yeah, at 1615 on 4th of march 2018 an emergency services call reported that sergey skirpal a 66-year-old resident of Salisbury, and his 33-year-old daughter, Yulia, who had flown into London's Heathrow Airport from Russia the previous day, had been found unconscious on a public bench in the center of Salisbury by a passing doctor and nurse. An eyewitness saw Yulia foaming at the mouth with her eyes wide open, but completely white. So let's stop there for just a moment. What do you think could cause that? Oh, Poor dear. You know, if she was truly awake and, and, you know, her eyes are kind of wide open so you can see the whites of her eyes all the way around and she's foaming at the mouth. So, Josh, we're probably talking about a paralytic agent right here, which is making kind of your jaw clench shut. It's making you salivate a ton, but you're unable to swallow those secretions. So it's kind of like as as your tongue and your cheeks and your throat are kind of clenched, um, that saliva is coming out of your mouth in little bursts. So it's mixing with air, which is what makes it look like the foam. And then, you know, you can't move. You know, the peripheral nervous system. And, and you know, it's a scary way to die because you're probably aware the whole time until you finally kind of black out from the lack of oxygen from not being able to breathe because you can't move your diaphragm. Well, this passing doctor and nurse initially assumed opioid overdose. Oh, well, that because makes sense. Okay, sure, sure. We in the medical field can run a little bit cynical, mm-hmm. and when we see someone passed out on the mm-hmm. bench in a park foaming at the mouth, our first thought is not, you know, spy. Yeah, in that case, I'm a little weirded out by the foaming at the mouth, especially if she's kind of clenched and if the, the, the muscle tone is kind of high, right? Unless they got like a, a contaminated amount of opiates because op- opiates are really a, a muscular, a neuromuscular downer. And, you know, when, you, when you're at the end of opiate toxicity where you're starting to die, you don't usually clench up like that, right? You know, they were rushed to the hospital and initially investigated for opioid poisoning, after which it quickly became apparent that something more was involved. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, again, March 4th. By March 14th, the investigation was focused on Skripal's home and car, a bench where the two fell unconscious, a restaurant in which they dined, mm-hmm. and a pub where they had drinks. By that point... It has identified that they were had they been poisoned, and the media, British media, speculated that poison had been placed in Yulia's suitcase. American media speculated that instead it was Sergey's car. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is just this is just the journalists right now. They're they're thinking about you know with with the sources that they have, the information that they have. 
what the most likely places are where they could be poisoned, but they don't have the full story yet. They started to kind of clue into this when a police officer who went to investigate the home to look for clues also fell sick and had to be rushed to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So by the 28th of March, the police investigation concluded that the Skirpals were poisoned at Sergei's home with the highest concentration being found on the handle of his front door. So this was something that passed through the skin. This kind of confirmed that it was a nerve agent and one delivered in a liquid form. As a result, eight sites require decontamination that'll take several months to complete and cost millions of pounds. And the BBC reported experts said the nerve agent used does not evaporate or disappear over time and instead requires intense cleaning with caustic chemicals. So we're going to get into that in a moment. But jumping ahead a month, on the 22nd of April, British counterterrorist police identified a suspect, a former FSB officer who acted under several code names, including Mikhail Savikis and Gordon, which admittedly, not a super threatening, intimidating name. You don't think, oh, no, it's Gordon. But then again, that's exactly the kind of name a spy should have is one that's rather unassuming. Sure, sure. Yeah, you don't, you don't want them to have a name like, you know, Spy McSpierson. Sneaky McSuspicious. <laughs> Boris Badenov. Sure, of course, yeah. For those of you younger viewers out there, please look up either uh, Moose and Squirrel or Bullwinkle and Rocky. Moose and Moose Squirrel. And squ Those are the facts of the case mm -hmm. as we understand. And that brings us to kind of tonight's topic. So we're going to be talking both about nerve agents and chemical weapons, things that are not supposed to be being used at all, things that are disavowed, clandestine, and really none of us should ever come across, but a few people likely will. Right. Um, hopefully none of our listeners. Yeah, and when we say disavowed clandestine, it should not be used according to a lot of treaties, agreements that have been made across the world collectively by tons and tons of countries. Governments who deployed them will immediately turn around and say, hey man, that wasn't us. I don't know who that person was. Chemical weapons, all of them have been outlawed by the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that's been signed by every country except for North Korea, Egypt, and South Sudan. Mm -hmm. South Sudan gets a little bit of a pass because they're brand new as a country. However, most governments do still have them as under the terms of this treaty, they're still allowed to produce up to 100 grams per year of these substances for research purposes. <laughs> As of right now, there are four generations of chemical weapons, and we're going to kind of go over these very briefly and then and jump in a bit deeper. Yeah. First well, generation. Well, actually, the millennial generation of these are quite lazy and self-absorbed. They're kind of like, oh, do I really have to poison today? Come on. <laughs> so first generation chemical weapons date back to World War One and the 1930s. There were three main agents that we're talking about at that time. These include choking agents that would focus primarily as lung irritants and cause pulmonary edema, such as phosgene. This was like one of the biggest killers in World War One and trench warfare. 
with these gas agents. And if you watch any kind of World War One movie, when you see gas distributed, it's one of only two chemical weapons. Phosgene is one. We'll get to the other in a mm-hmm. moment. The second would be known as blood agents that inactivate the cytochrome oxidase system. An example of that would be cyanide. I, I believe we've covered cyanide in previous episodes we as well. We have, yeah. Just as a quick review, basically you know, oxygen, nutrients, everything else is getting to the cell, but basically on the cellular level. So in the tissues, things are shut down. So you can't use any of that yummy, yummy oxygen can deliver all the goodness you want, but if the tissues can't use it, they die. So that's why they're blood agents. They affect what's going on in your blood. The third type were blister agents or vesicants, and that's mustard gas. Yeah, and this 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 is really mean, horrible stuff. Mustard gas was the least fatal, although the most disturbing or yeah, destructive. In terms of- producing pure pain and agony. They're horrible, horrible agents. And it is thought that a young Adolf Hitler was exposed to mustard gas in the trenches of World War One, and that kind of kept him from massively deploying chemical weapons during World War Two on the battlefield. Uh, he unfortunately did use quite a few internally during the Holocaust. In response to these first-generation chemical weapons, chemists of the German Farben synthesized a series of new organophosphates. Now, these were found accidentally while searching for new research and development into pesticides. And then when their weaponized potential was realized, they were deployed or stockpiled for use in the battlefield. So the second generation of chemical weapons is these pesticides or these organophosphate nerve agents. And that's what we're going to be talking about a lot later today. They are very effective inhibitors of an enzyme known as acetylcholinesterase. Nerve agents known as tabun and sarin became the basis of chemical weapons of the second generation. We jump forward past World War II and we move into the peak period of the Cold War, you know, the top for spy yeah, literature. This is, uh, this is when, you know, we, we were in a nuclear arms race, we were in a space race, but going on behind the scenes was really this horrible chemical weapon where nobody else could even think about it. And what distinguishes chemical weapons of the third generation is really their intermediate volatility agents and the creation of binary ammunition. And binary ammunition being you take two harmless chemicals, but when they combine, they create a deadly agent. So now they become much easier to transport. Like nobody's carrying around a packet of mustard gas because one trip over your feet and, well, you're going to have a bad day. But if you're carrying, you know, one packet in your left pocket and one packet in your right and nothing happens till they're mashed together, well, that turns them into a much more right. effective and weapon. if you want to visualize this, think of the old paper mache volcano, right? So you have your baking soda and you have your vinegar and you can store them completely separately. They just kind of sit there. But as soon as you drop the vinegar on top of the baking soda or vice versa, boom, you get an explosion. Now, most of these third-generation agents were usually in a liquid form, as that's where they were most stable. So following the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union reacted with an extensive program 
codename Foliant, to create a new fourth-generation chemical weapon, with the result being a technology for binary ammunition with agents exerting enhanced toxicity and now available in powdered forms. And these agents were known as Novichok. And that, it is suspected to be a Novichok agent used in the poisoning of the Skirpals. Skripals? Skirpals. Yes. Um, so Novichok means newcomer in Russian, and that's what these poisons were. Reportedly, they were developed in an attempt to circumvent the Chemical Weapons Treaty. Now, this is really interesting because chemical weapons are banned on the basis of chemical structure. So existing chemical structures, therefore, new chemical agents are not subject to past treaties because you can't ban something that hasn't been invented yet. It's an interesting loophole. Actually, Josh, we dealt with this a little bit when we were talking about recreational and street drugs as well, right? So when you're trying to ban a substance, for instance, like cocaine or ecstasy, and you say, oh, that's a street drug and a government is trying to ban it like they do here in the United States. Well, all you have to do is like move a carbon a little bit. And technically, you're not dealing with a banned substance anymore. So the person who's carrying it around or distributing it or using it is no longer a criminal. It's funny because the government here in the United States has already rapidly gotten around that little loophole, but they don't seem to be able to agree on an international level how not to just ban chemical weapons, (laughs) which are much, much worse. And the problem with, again, these Novichok or fourth generation agents is they've been specifically engineered to be undetectable by standard detection equipment to defeat standard chemical protective gear. And they also act by inhibiting cholinesterase. While some are liquids, others are thought to be solids or ultrafine powders. And again, the fact that they're binary weapons mean their components may not be illegal or toxic at all. And that's where kind of banning all chemical weapons becomes very difficult because, you know, chemistry takes a lot of mm-hmm. non-lethal things or lethal things. For example, table salt, pure sodium, mm-hmm. not great for you. Pure chloride. Yep. Also not healthy, but combine the two together and you get the thing that makes everything delicious. <laughs> That's right. These agents are developed because their component parts are not on the bands list. So let's kind of talk about what do nerve agents actually do. And before we get into the nitty gritty of acetylcholinesterase and do a deep dive into our molecular biology, at which I'm sure Dr. Santoshi will be oh, having that. the time of your life. That is that is so your your. <laughs> wheelhouse. Um, let's, let's talk about what do nerve agents do? So they disrupt messaging between your nerves and your muscles. So this causes your muscles to become paralyzed and leads to the loss of many bodily functions. Uh, agents, depending on their toxicity, can act within seconds or minutes if inhaled and a little bit more slowly if exposed through the skin. Symptoms can vary from things like White eyes as your Mm -hmm. pupils become constricted, convulsions from muscle spasms, drooling as you lose control over your respiratory areas, and in the worst cases, coma, respiratory failure, and death. If you've ever sprayed insect repellent at a fly, you might have seen it drop to the ground and lie on its back, legs twitching. That's a nerve agent uh, designed for bugs, and that's also why you see on cans of Raid and things like that, keep out of eyes, mouth, 
and wash with any contact right. with skin. They each have their own different kind of diagnosis and exposure to agents can be tested by just checking blood samples for any decreased acetylcholinesterase enzyme activity. Progressive symptoms suggest continued exposure, meaning you haven't had inadequate de decontamination, you haven't washed enough, or you've chosen the wrong antidote. And the main way to distinguish between nerve agents and chemical agents is to look for muscle twitching and excess secretions. So let's get into these. Uh, Santosh, since I don't want to kind of steal the floor from you, before we launch into some of the more historical ones, why do you talk about acetylcholinesterase oh, and sure. the nerve muscle junction? So we're talking about the peripheral nervous system here. Okay. So everything except the brain and the spinal cord. So you've got motor nerves that run from your brain through your spinal cord and then out to your muscles. So if everybody wants to look at their left hand or their right hand right now, the the nerves that are firing in the peripheral nervous system to help you open and close your fist go from right at the base of your neck all the way down your arm and then they move the muscles in your forearm and in your hand in order to move your fingers. Well, when those signals are moving along the nerve, it goes from one nerve to the other. There's a little gap there called a synapse. Okay. So in between the nerve and the actual muscle, the nerve doesn't actually burrow into the muscle. It kind of hovers. There's a little gap, that synaptic cleft, and the signal to tell the muscle to contract is called acetylcholine. So the synaptic button, which I absolutely love that term. So at the very end of the synaptic button at the nerve, these little vesicles come out of the cell and release this uh, chemical called acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft great name also. And that acetylcholine travels across the space and binds onto receptors on the muscle side. And then there's some signals within the cell to tell the muscle to contract. Well, as you can imagine, that acetylcholine can't just stay there and stay there forever because then your muscles would just contract and contract and contract. You actually need to shut off that signal in order to get your muscles to relax again. So there is a chemical that kind of lives, it's a little resident inside of that synaptic cleft called acetylcholine esterase. So it takes the acetylcholine and actually separates it out. It, it breaks up the molecule so that it can no longer bind to those receptors on the muscle side. Move and along, and nothing to see here. Exactly. Out of the cleft, everybody. The, the byproducts get recycled up into the axon of the, uh, I should say the dendrite, um, of the of the motor neuron. And it, you know, it, it gets recycled back in there and then it's ready to be kind of put back together for use for the next time you want to control them, uh, contract the muscle. Um, now, if there's a problem with that acetylcholine esterase, right, then what will happen is your muscle will just contract and contract and contract and contract until the muscle fiber itself fatigues and you can't contract anymore and then you'll kind of be stuck there in that contracted phase without being able to let go or release and for your hand you can imagine that's uncomfortable and it's disabling and it's scary but if this kind of thing happens to something really really important like your diaphragm then you stop breathing 
because everything just stays clenched where your diaphragm is. So you kind of like that. And then you cannot breathe in, you cannot breathe out, you can't move your diaphragm and you run out of oxygen and you basically suffocate just standing very still. So that's or more accurately, rather than saying you can't breathe in or breathe out, you're stuck yeah. doing only exactly. one so without the other. You were in, you're right there. You're stuck. Kind of like if someone socks you, you know, right there in that solar plexus and you just <gasps> right there. And, you know, in this case, you know, that it's, it's a temper, it's a permanent paralysis. And if you don't get rid of that blockade of the acetylcholine esterase, then, you know, in, in a hurry, then that muscle will stay clenched. And even if you try to artificially respirate this person, meaning if you try to put a tube down their throat and try to breathe for them, there's going to be a rigidity to the chest wall and to the diaphragm so that you won't be able to blow air in and out and get it to circulate. So, you know, you could be in some real, real trouble if you don't get these muscles to relax. So it's a very, very devious poison. Now, that kind of method of operating is how second, third, and fourth generation chemical weapons all work. So we're going to go into each one of those agents a little bit and talk about them and how differences in their compounds led to differences in how these sort of present. But before we do that, let's talk briefly about those first generation ones, the ones you don't see anymore and led to the treaty to ban all chemical weapons to begin with. Like the second people saw these, they knew they were bad news. Mustard gas, mustard. Yes, the same mustard that we put on our hot dogs can be developed into a terrible chemical weapon. And this mustardy smelling, generally colorless gas can take anywhere from two to 24 hours to take effect depending on concentration but the resulting skin eye and respiratory burns could put whole units out of commission during world war one and was a real need to have those gas masks to protect the lungs any open skin would blister and that's why these were known as a vesicants most mustard gas victims would recover in a matter of weeks with some experiencing permanent scarring and blindness as a result of exposure. But the real insidious danger of this is that because the gas was denser than the surrounding oxygen or air, it could pose a danger to troops days or even weeks following its initial deployment. As the gas settled into the ground, especially in cold conditions, it could be stirred up and provoke a whole brand new attack by a fresh set of boots marching right. along so weeks you later. You have to think of this um, as not really a gas that you think of that just kind of sits, you know, it's, it's poured into one place. And then if the area is open or wide enough, it'll kind of dissipate. This is a quite a heavy gas and it sort of sits and sinks almost like a dense fog. So even when you think it's gone, it's not really gone. And, you know, if it gets stirred up, just like Josh was saying, you know, you walk through it and the, the area was not clear of the mustard gas. So all of a sudden, you know, your skin starts to blister and you're burning and it hurts. And, you know, even if you don't inhale it, you could become severely disabled. And so this was the, this was the worst part of this is that it couldn't just take out you know, huge amounts of troops. It could make an area unsuitable to traverse. 
That's that's the most crazy part about that. Area denial weapon. So even if you were retreating and you laid down mustard gas, any troops trying to follow you would have a real hard time crossing right. these no man zones. Also meant that you kind of made it inhospitable for your own troops too. So you you know it was the equivalent, Josh. I think of like the old siege technique of just salting the earth. It's like, hey, if I can't have this piece of land, nobody can have it. Why do we always have to turn to <laughs> condiments to destroy things? Salt the earth, well, mustard I, the I, earth, catch, well, catch up to the fortifications. I, will, I was going to say um, ketchup is, is actually, thankfully, it has not been weaponized by either side except in the city of Chicago. Because if you put that shit on a hot dog in Chicago, you will definitely make some enemies. <laughs> and you should, you monster. Let's catch up Josh on a hot dog. Is very, very progressively minded, but when it comes to his hot dog preferences, extremely conservative. <laughs> the next chemical weapon of the first generation was chlorine gas, and it actually was in an act that marked modern warfare's first major use of chemical weapons. And the Germans deployed thousands of chlorine gas cylinders at the Battle of Ypres. Y- I, I, I can't to pronounce out that. How to pronounce it too? This is bad research on our part, people. We apologize. No, it's good <laughs> research. It's bad pronunciation. So, the Battle of Ypres in 1915 yeah. was the first use of chemical warfare, predating even mustard gas in World War One. And it wiped out two entire divisions of French and Algerian soldiers with this yellow-green, pungent, smelly killer. Now, if you've ever been by a public pool, you know what chlorine smells like, and it's not pleasant. So how awful was it, though? Well, to quote the British poet Wilfred Owen, the final doomed moments of a gas attack are characterized by gutting, choking, drowning as you flounder like a man in fire or lime. Uh, lime being quick lime, not lime right. in the coconut <laughs> lime. Yeah, this is much, much worse than your lime in the coconut lime. This was the beginning of what some called the chemist's war because when chlorine gas, pure chlorine, not the diluted uh, bound version that's in your swimming pools, when pure chlorine comes into contact with the eyes, the throat, the lungs, it reacts with moisture to form hydrochloric acid. So Cl plus H2O becomes HCl and O2. Mm-hmm. Very basic chemistry. So it burns, it chokes, it blinds. And the Germans were so shocked by how effective this gas was and how horrible it was, they failed to take advantage, and the Allies actually held their position despite having two whole regiments right. wiped out. So, you know, I, I Josh, I want to bring up one important name in, you know, the discovery of the chlorine gas and its weaponization. And this is uh, Fritz Haber. Um, who lived between 1868 and 1934. And Josh, this guy was responsible for the lives of, I'm not kidding, billions of people. And I'm talking about saving the lives of billions of people and killing millions. This is how, you know, kind of black and white this guy was. This was a German scientist and he lived, uh, he was born 1868. He lived in 1934 and he had come up along with Bosch. He had patented the process to actually fix nitrogen. And this, this process of nitrogen fixation, Josh, is the one that gives us all of like the fertilizers for the enormous amount of crops that we can grow 
in the modern world today. And because of that, our population went from, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions to billions in the short period of time, like post World War One. Right. But at the same time, he knew that while he was fixing nitrogen as ammonia, um, you know, he was able to, you know, come up with all these other scary things, including uh, mass production of nitric acid, which was the source of explosives um, that Germany used in World War One. And he also found that, you know, some of the same processes that he was using allowed him to distill chlorine gas into these big vats. And so he, you know, went to the Western Front. He went to Ypres and he was one of the scientists that supervised the installation of these big cylinders of chlorine gas. And just as we said before with mustard gas, that it was heavier than, you know, ambient air and it would drop. So this chlorine gas would drop into the trenches and it would fill it up. Um, almost like flooding the trenches uh, would do. And it would just sit there and linger. And the Axis couldn't use it. The Allies couldn't use it. Nobody could use those trenches without, you know, dying super, super tragically. Josh, um, 5,000 soldiers were killed. And that is one third of the total casualties of that battle. That is insane. So, you know rightfully after seeing this imagine using a weapon on somebody and being so horrified at its effectiveness that you're like you know what Mm, we're done we're gonna tap out with that one this guy haber he celebrated you know for creating nitrogen fixation and at the same time he's thought of as one of the greatest you know war criminals of all time because he created this chlorine gas and basically he's the genesis of chemical warfare uh at the same time so He's a scary dude. Yeah. Uh, now, it wasn't just Germany that chemical warfare and things were taking place. And before we get proper into organophosphates, I am going to talk about one other agent that isn't quite first or second generation. You might want to call it, you know, okay. generation 1.5. And that is the agent BZ or uh, <laughs> Buzz. And it was invented by the Swiss pharmaceutical company Hoffman La Roche in 1951. Uh, the company was investigating just antispasmodic agents for treating gastrointestinal disorders when they discovered the chemical. It was investigated for possible use in ulcer treatment, but found unsuitable for reasons that you will <laughs> that will quickly become apparent. The army, however, found a lot of use for it in the 60s, and it got the NATO codename BZ and became known as Buzz because of that abbreviation and the effects it had on the mental state of human volunteers. So it had a very potent ability to depress the central nervous system. It dulls several crucial cognitive functions, including memory, problem solving attention and comprehension and does so for upwards of three days this is like an extreme form of something like a benzodiazepine or alcohol or something like that you may have seen black and white videos on youtube from when you know soldiers were given lsd or other hallucinogens and they're climbing trees and dropping their guns and spinning in fields 
BZ was one of these agents. And the U.S. deployed Buzz against the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War and allegedly explored its possible use as a contingency plan in the event of a oh civilian uprising. Are you kidding Using it on their own people. This was also in the era of, you know, the 60s, 70s, when you have like Hoover and being very suspicious. Now, the U.S. ultimately abandoned the use of this super hallucinogen due to its unpredictability on the battlefield. But there are still accusations of Iraqi buzz research and Syrian buzz use. So that's one of the agents that Syria was thought to use on its own people in the Civil War. And it's even thought to be occasionally a recreational drug among insurgents. This is one of the few chemical weapons that there is a fairly effective treatment for. It's used with a chemical called physostigmine, a compound that enhances the levels of a substance, acetylcholine, between neurons in the brain. So most of our other chemical war weapons uh, prevent acetylcholine from being broken down and destroyed buzz is actually the opposite Uh, because it's a depressant you treat it by using more acetylcholine physostigmine has also been used on patients suffering from carbon monoxide intoxication or enhancing memory in patients with alzheimer's Um, so i thought it was just kind of an interesting takeaway where all the rest of these really decrease the effect of acetylcholine esterase that all the remainder agents that we're going to talk about. But this early one, this actually had the exact opposite effect and was deemed to be too unpredictable for use as a weapon. Wow. Oh my gosh. This yeah. is kind of an overarching theme that we're going to see here a lot is that if you want to deploy you know, these chemicals somewhere where you can hurt people, you have to take on this risk that you may indeed just wax your own people. So now let's get to the real meat of our episode and talk about organophosphates. Poisoning with organophosphates, most of these are used today traditionally as agricultural pesticides, and it's one of the number one causes of death, mostly by sadly suicide, but also a very high cause of death and accidents in the agricultural community. Uh, because these are people who are around these compounds the most frequently. They're not always used as, you know, agents to take out rival spies, but they are used to spray down crops and chemicals. The effects of organophosphate poisoning, they act on both nicotinic and muscarinic, which are the two kinds of receptors at the synaptic junction. Think of it as doors that each have a different key to unlock. Um, The same key unlocks both of them, but using two very different methods. And on the muscarinic receptors, which is where the real problems come in, you can remember organophosphate's effects with the mnemonic (laughs) sludgem. I remember this in med school. Sludgem is, if you remember Santosh, salivation, lacrimation, urination, (laughs) defecation, GI, motility, emesis, meiosis. (laughs) And it was the opposite, if you remember, of belladonna alkaloids, correct? So with this poison, you're kind of secreting and, you know, you're you're kind of overproducing and clenching. So we would use um, the uh, – it wasn't really an acronym. It was a bunch of sayings, right? So you'd say you were hot as a – what was it? Hot as a hare, mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, blind as a bat because your pupils would dilate rather than constrict. I think it was hot as a hare also because you'd, you'd heat up a bunch we, we would remember these belladonna alkaloids 
um, at, in kind of opposition to this class. But it wasn't quite as catchy to remember as Sludgem, which is why that <laughs> that one didn't stick with me, you know, 15 some odd years later. I, I know now, like, we're going to finish recording here and it's going to be, you know, 1, 2, 3 a.m. And I'm going to sit up straight in mm-hmm. my bed and I'm going to recite that little fairy tale. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be chanting myself to sleep. Salivation, lacrimation, <laughs> urination, defecation, emesis, meiosis, GI motility. Um, I like it. So organophosphate intoxication has effects on a lot of different systems. And one of the biggest dangers is that it can have these effects without being inhaled. Just from having it land on your skin, it can be absorbed through the skin and do all those. Now, it has a lot of cardiac effects too. So we talked about all the muscarinic mm-hmm. effects uh, with that first mnemonic, but it also can affect the nicotinic receptors, receptors that were first discovered based on their f- response to nicotine. So in case you were wondering, yes, there right. is a connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not pulling this um, out of thing. But, but organophosphate intoxication on the heart has three phases. First, you get nicotinic phase hypertension and sinus tachycardia, meaning your blood pressure goes up, as does your heart rate. Then, remember we talked about uh, earlier, Santosh mentioned how as acetylcholinesterase kind of dissipates or the muscles f- get fatigued or that junction gets fatigued. So then you see the opposite. Rather than high blood pressure and rapid heart rate, you get sinus bradycardia, meaning a slow heart rate, and parasympathetic overstimulation, meaning you work the heart so hard that you actually send it into a heart attack. It can't get the oxygen it needs to do its job properly. And you see rhythm disturbances. During that last phase, now it's beating out of sync and you get a very unique cardiac picture known as torsade de points and oh. sudden cardiac death. So hold your on, heart beats on. very we gotta, fast. We gotta use the French. Torsade de points. So basically, your heart beats very fast, then it gets tired, so it starts being very slow, then it gets completely fatigued and starved for oxygen, doesn't know what rhythm to beat at, and starts beating out of rhythm erratically until it finally just drops. Now, one of the unique things about organophosphates is they have a time-delayed neurotoxicity, meaning there is they selectively inhibit these enzymes in nerve tissue compared to other tissues because there is a special enzyme known as a neuropathy target esterase that is found in muscle and blood cells. So you don't, it doesn't affect every organ system at the same time or immediately. So depending on how much you take and when, you may not realize you've been exposed to this until some time later. Now, if a person survives the very first day of organophosphate poisoning, and as toxic as these agents are, that's not always a guarantee, you can see some permanent personality changes, aggressive events, psychotic episodes, permanent disturbances and deficits in memory and attention. And when death occurs, it's usually due to respiratory failure from a combined central and peripheral effect, meaning paralysis of your respiratory muscles like the diaphragm and depression of the brain respiratory center. The central nervous system Um, is, this is what's getting attacked when the acetylcholine signaling in the brain itself 
gets attacked, right? So if you think about, you know, dementia or all of a sudden, you know, kind of delirium that you would see in moderate to late onset Alzheimer's, this is the same type of stuff that can happen. And that's why we can use or, or kind of exploit these same pathways in, in, in the acetylcholine pathways in the brain to actually try and alleviate some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease um, because some of the same pathways are shared. Presumably, they ha- the hospital has not released all the information from the Skirpals, but presumably something about the presentation at their hospital clued them in along the way that it was likely some kind of organophosphate or nerve agent. And they started noticing these kinds of things and got to them before a lot of these permanent changes could start taking effect. Not before all of them could, but many. So people afflicted with cholinergic syndromes were given would be given atropine combined with an oxime to combat the acute effects, as well as a relaxant-like diazepam to in combination we'll go we'll talk about those in a little bit but how do you diagnose it well if you have this suspicion you want something that is going to give you a fast screening and we'll tell you what are the levels of acetylcholinesterase activity in the blood right because that's what these organophosphates do they remove this enzyme that breaks down the acetylcholine so it's really tough to test for just that signaling chemical, but you can test much easier for the enzyme that breaks it down. It's a larger molecule. It's easier to pick up. And the most widely used portable testing device is known as the Testmate cholinesterase field test. And that can be used to determine levels of red blood cells, acetylcholinesterase, as well as a derivative, pseudocholinesterase, it can detect it in the blood in about four minutes after That's the test is administered. Nice. Okay, Josh, I'm going to jump in here because I just found it, and I, I'm, I'm, I've got to get it out of my brain and into the microphone, or I'm going to go crazy. So organophosphates will cause the sludgem, so you're going to salivate a lot. Your tears are going to build up. You're going to pee. You're going to poop. Your bowels are going to move a ton, and you're going to throw up, and your pupils are going to get really, really small, right? So the belladonna alkaloids, one of which is atropine, we're going to discuss in just a second, right? They produce the opposite, the anticholinergic syndrome, which is mad as a hatter. You go a little crazy, blind as a bat because your pupils get super big, not super small. Red as a beet is the one we couldn't think of. So you flush. Um, yeah, hot as a ah. hair, which I thought so. So I don't know. Our hair is very hot. <laughs> so <laughs> your, your skin gets super dry and then dry as a bone. So instead of tearing up and salivating a bunch, you actually stop salivating and your mouth goes dry and your eyes go dry. Um, and then the stuff that isn't included in there is that you'll get urinary retention, so you won't be able to pee, and you'll get uh, bowel retention as well, so you won't really be able to poop. So you can see how these two substances are kind of in opposition to each other, and you can kind of use one to balance out the other in case of poisoning. So let's get into those second-generation chemical agents. So most of the organophosphates we're talking about, all of them, are kind of these next chemical weapons. But they all took action just a teeny bit differently because their chemical structures were just unique enough from each other. So first we have the second generation or the G agents. 
Tabun was GA. It was a chemical munition that inhibits acetylcholinesterase, and it's an inhaled agent. Its toxicity is low compared to sarin, which is the other agent, and it decreased plasma and acetylcholinesterase activity in the red blood cells uh, specifically and significantly. At about 20 or 25% of your baseline, the effect of the nerve agent becomes noticeable. So it only has to affect a quarter of your blood to start having a noticeable effect, but it does not have, it's one of the weakest agents and doesn't produce that delayed neurotoxicity except at extremely high doses. So if you're exposed to it, you'll see it, you'll know, but it's not going to force a delay where even after you've been treated or possibly treated, you see this show up later. However, sarin, which is GB, because again, these are G agents, sarin is a little bit more deadly and was involved in terrorist attacks in Japan, most famously the subway attack in 1995, I believe, in the by the Aum Shinrikyo cult, where they punctured several gases full of sarin with umbrellas in a subway car, leading to something like 12 or 14 fatalities. Oh, dear. Um, the increase in sympathetic and parasympathetic tone has a much more pronounced cardiac effect, whereas taboon affects more of the blood, and sarin does exhibit delayed cardiotoxicity. Uh, so there were a lot of arrhythmias as a possible cause and exposure can be lethal at even very low conf- concentrations with death occurring with within one to 10 minutes after direct inhalation of a lethal dose, usually from lung muscle paralysis, unless antidotes are quickly administered. And even people who absorb a non-lethal dose, so like the ones who said, oh my gosh, there's people coming on and puncturing the bags and got out like very quickly still had some permanent neurological damage. Yeah. That's, that's the scariest part of these is that, you know, they reversibly bind to this enzyme acetylcholinesterase, which is so fundamental to how we get around. So, you know, our body doesn't have a good mechanism of making more acetylcholinesterase in a hurry or kind of flushing these toxins out of where they act right there in that synaptic cleft, the toxin gets stuck there, the enzymes get stuck, and then, you know, you're, you're full of acetylcholine in all the wrong places. Now, moving on to the third generation, the most toxic nerve agent available in the West is VX, which is short for Venomous Agent X. Not terribly creative. No, but it gets the point across. Let's go ahead and stop for a moment to address what I know everyone is thinking. Whoa, we gotta, we gotta stop the VX gas. They're the rockets. Thank you, Nicolas Cage. I'm the only one who knows how to deactivate it. VX gas, as seen in The Rock. Unforgettable action adventure thriller movie with the incomparable Nicolas Cage. That man is a national yeah, treasure. And one of the last opuses of Mr. Sean Connery's career. There's only <laughs> one who's ever escaped the rock, and that was me. <laughs> You're going to need me along <laughs> with you. <laughs> so VX is, in fact, a real agent and was not just made up as a MacGuffin for the movie. <laughs> 
It acts by increasing, just like the other nerve agents, it increases acetylcholine at the nerve synapses by inhibiting the enzyme that breaks it down, acetylcholinesterase. Toxicity sets in when more than 50% of the enzyme is inhibited, and VX produces intense stimulation of the nicotinic receptor channels and the muscarinic. So the potentially fatal dose is only slightly higher than the has any effect at all dose. (laughs) And effects of a fatal dose are so rapid that there is little time for treatment. For example, when Nicolas Cage smashes that bubble in the other guy's mouth and he immediately starts foaming at the mouth, spasming, and dies within, I don't know, something like a minute or two of screen time, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) With the caveat that um, adrenaline or epinephrine doesn't really work alone as a reversal agent and you really don't need to stab yourself in the heart with a giant needle in order to rescue yourself. (laughs) That was a little bit of movie magic. Although (laughs) physostigmine, that same one that we talked about earlier being used to treat buzz, Mm -hmm. uh, physostigmine in combination with hyoscine is undergoing investigation as a possible antidote. It's a great little mechanism, but I think, as you said, Josh, that eventually even the um, the antidote kind of wears off. Now, cholinesterase does, quote-unquote, turn over. So inside of that synaptic cleft, what happens is the enzyme itself gets broken down over time and then replenished. And when it breaks down like that, the stuff that binds it, in this case the VX molecule, does kind of like it has to unbind and kind of go away. It gets destroyed at the same time. So there is a period of time, if you can get the patient to stay alive, that the the toxin will kind of break down and slowly get out of your system. Um, but it's not a short amount of time. Now, VX was the agent reportedly used to kill the half-brother of Kim Jong-un. Oh, wow. Uh, Back in February of 2017, Kim Jong-nam, who is the half-brother of current North Korean leader, died during an assault in the Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia. Uh, According to the authorities, he was murdered by poisoning with VX gas, which was found on his face, and it was when uh, two women kind of came up and I don't know if they slapped him or caressed him, but they definitely touched him. And it was suspected that the women applied the nerve agent. And one of the women applying the nerve agent uh, was also thought to experience some physical symptoms of VX poisoning. If it's on your skin, you can't really deliver it to somebody else's skin without, you know, getting exposed yourself. The rock was all about VX gas, but this was actually an oily liquid because people who studied this said, you know, the VX fumes would have killed the suspected attackers even if they had been wearing gloves. So likely this was done as a binary agent, two non-lethal components that would mix to form VX only on the victim's face. Now, sarin and VX are both organophosphate-based chemicals that are odorless, colorless, tasteless liquids. The main difference between them is that sarin is very volatile and wafts through the air, whereas VX is very thick and oily. So sarin has to enter the body via inhalation, whereas VX much more commonly soaks through the skin. But when we're talking about toxicity, it only takes 10 milligrams of VX on the skin to kill compared to 1,700 milligrams of sarin to be inhaled. And if anybody 
wants to know what a milligram is like? Well, a gram is a paperclip, so it's a thousandth of that. <laughs> so we're talking about like grains of salt here. Depending on the particular nerve agent, acetylcholinesterase becomes irreversibly phosphorylated, meaning inactivated, via a time-dependent process called aging. Aged enzymes cannot be restored by any reactivators. Think about if acetylcholinesterase is a car driving around, cleaning up all the stragglers from a parade. Aging is putting a boot, clamping a boot onto that car, and it can't go anywhere, and it can't be taken off. And because of the irreversible inhibition of the enzyme, it can't have its effect so therefore, the acetylcholine accumulates and persistently stimulates the receptors. That's where these really come in. So what are the full symptoms? You know, we've talked about a lot of them. Contraction of the pupils, which is known as meiosis. As a result, deterioration of visual sights, headache, slurred speech, nausea, hallucination, pronounced chest pain. At higher doses, these are much more pronounced and you start seeing coughing and breathing problems. Right. And then eventually and paralysis. The paralysis is not of the muscles. You'll actually be twitching like a fiend. Yeah, yeah. It's your lungs that get paralyzed as your muscles spasm. Right. So imagine clenching those breathing muscles so tight that you can't move them. And, you know, your lungs, your lungs are actually passive, you know, airbags. They need to be stretched and compressed in order to breathe. So if the muscles surrounding the lungs are stuck in place, so are you. Treatment for all these exposures, as we said, is not a giant needle of epinephrine in the heart. <laughs> that movie and Pulp Fiction, I think that created that weird phenomenon of stabbing someone in the heart with adrenaline. Well, there are times when it is necessary, but this is not one of them. Yeah. Treatment for sarin and VX exposure involves giving atropine to block the effects of acetylcholine. We talked about how, you know, you have the matazahat or drizobone. It's the exact counterpart to the organophosphates, along with pralidoxime, which is thought to restore the activity of the acetylcholinesterase enzyme. It promotes that turnover in, re in restoring the breakdown enzyme, and diazepam to stop the convulsions, those muscular spasms so you don't hurt yourself. Very often, you have to be ventilated to help the victims breathe, meaning some machine has to do your breathing for you because your lungs are paralyzed. And all of these things were done for the skirballs. There can be lifelong health complications for victims if they pull through, including blurred vision, tiredness, difficulty concentrating, forgetfulness, frequent headaches. All the stuff you're doing, you know, the chemicals that you're administering like atropine, bisostigmine, you know, everything else, 2PAM, prolidoxum, they are going to help best with the peripheral nervous system. They're not very good at getting into your brain and spinal cord and helping with the toxicity in the brain itself. And I'm glad you brought that up because pralidoxim can actually only regenerate cholinesterases if it's given within about five hours of the poisoning. And in terms of blood-brain barrier efficiency, a synthetic antagonist known as biperidin has actually been suggested as an alternative to atropine because it is more effective at penetrating the blood-brain barrier. Ultimately, you know, if you save your patient, but they're, you know, either mentally or psychologically disabled for the rest of their lives, sometimes severely, you haven't really done them a favor. Luckily, our spy story has a happy ending where after <laughs> three weeks in critical condition, 
Yulia regained consciousness and was able to speak, although she now does have a tracheostomy scar from having to be intubated from a prolonged period. And Sergei also was in a critical condition, and he regained consciousness a month after the attack, so about a week later than Yulia. He is being very well protected and hidden somewhere, presumably within the United Kingdom. Although Yulia has made a couple media appearances and says that at some point she looks forward to going back home to Russia, which is, wow. (laughs) I'm I'm talking about, you know, solid steel spine on an individual that like, these are some brave, brave people. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know they just tried to kill me. I'm going to go home anyway. Screw you guys. So that kind of wraps up this episode on our disavowed agents. And, you know, knock list on wood, but uh, this podcast, we I'm afraid that we don't have time to give a just a tip this week as agents on our are on our tail and could be after us at any moment. This podcast will self-destruct within one week when we put out another episode. (laughs) But actually, like it won't really self-destruct because it'll still be available for a long, long time on our Squarespace page and on the iTunes queue. Tell people about it, but you didn't hear it from us. Wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. Slide the link like, you know, kind of across the table without making eye contact. Agents who wish to communicate with us can do so via our... Facebook, Squarespace, or Twitter accounts. <laughs> Shut up. Facebook. Sorry. So that wraps it up for this week. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes. We love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Please give us ratings and reviews. This show is produced with a lot of help from my co-hosts <laughs> and anonymous sources. <laughs> Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure, who is somewhere abroad in an undisclosed location <laughs> doing important work. And we are going to have to abort and meet at the safe house. So until next time, as always, happy travels. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.